Um, well, uh, anybody want to talk about divine judgment? <laughs> yeah, fun topic, light topic, good summary topic. Um, you know, the idea of, of a judging God, in all seriousness, for, for many people, both Christian and non-Christian, is an incredibly difficult one to deal with, isn't it? Uh, if, if you're here, in fact, and you're not a Christian, um, welcome, by the way. We're so stoked you're here. You make our community a better place. Um, but, but you personally might be thinking, like, this is the, one of the main issues that, that keeps me from fully committing myself to church or to following Jesus or, or whatever, the idea of a judging God. Uh, for, for Christians in the room, some, some of you that are following Jesus, certainly not for all of you, but for some of you, this might be one of those things that as you've grown in following Jesus, you've, uh, you know, you've known you've had to make mental space in your head and in your heart um, for like this idea, but it's just never sat comfortably there. You, you've continued to sort of like, oh, what does this mean and how does this reconcile with God's goodness and his love and his mercy and all these kinds of things? Um, I suspect many of us are kind of in that camp even right now. But the Bible's interesting. Oftentimes the biblical writers or the biblical characters, uh, they will one, in one scene, in one moment, be the object of God's like serious justice and judgment. And then moments later, scenes later, pages later, they'll be calling out desperately to God uh, for him to bring his judgment into the world. Um, and honestly, it sounds weird at first, but I think we can actually relate to this more than maybe we give ourselves credit for. Honestly, I, I think it only takes a little bit of, of personal suffering or a little bit of, of empathy for the suffering of someone that's close to you. Uh, to begin to feel welling up inside you a sense of deep injustice, anger, frustration, and, and a longing to see justice done, the idea that that's not right, what I'm seeing here, or what I'm experiencing, or what my loved one is experiencing. And, and to, to move even toward a, a plea to God, even if you're not sure if there is a God up there, like, God, if you exist, you've got to do something about this. This cannot stand. I think emotionally, deep down, there's a place in each of us uh, where, where we, we certainly don't want God's judgment to fall on us but we think it has to fall on somebody or some situation or some injustice or some evil or some brokenness that we see out in the world. And so as we continue through the Minor Prophets, this is uh, week two of a 12-week series through the Minor Prophets where we're looking specifically at passages in each Minor Prophet that, that points clearly to Jesus. Uh, the, the idea of divine judgment is going to come up time and time again. Um, this week, we're looking at the prophet Joel. So if you have your Bible, turn to Joel. Uh, it's kind of a slippery little, little book in the back of the Old Testament, so no, no shame if you need to use your uh, table of contents right towards the end of the Old Testament. Joel. Um, and as you're turning there, I just want to say, there's no single, simple, like, silver bullet uh, passage or idea or whatever, or teaching that's just going to make instantly everyone go, oh, yeah, like, I'm totally cool with divine judgment. That concept sits really easily with me. But I do think there's something in the way that Joel in particular 
And this text we're going to look at connects this whole concept to Jesus and what he's up to in the world and what he promises to do in the world that actually can begin to move us a little bit uh, into that spirit that the prophets possessed as they, as they talked about this. So that's what we're up to. Does that sound good? Okay. Well, before we jump into Joel, I just want to revisit. Oh, I have to say this, first of all. We, last week we said we're going to be showing the Bible Project videos every week. Uh, and we're not going to, we, we decided. We just realized after long, a long, hard look at it that just I would give a way better summary than Tim Mackey would <laughs> of each of those books. So we're like, man, let's, let's, not, let's pull out the big guns for this. <laughs> that is so stupid. Um, no, that was not the reason. Uh, the reason was just that the videos are kind of long and it's just kind of strange we felt after last week to, to throw the video in. So uh, we do recommend them. Go look up the video on Joel. He, I guarantee you he will explain it more succinctly and beautifully than I will. Uh, so, so go do that. Um, but for this week, I want to start with just a reminder of the big story that God's up to in, in the whole Bible. Um, and, and in fact, when you read especially the Old Testament, but it carries through to the New, when you read the overarching story, you actually see that God God's relationship with his people actually operates on these cycles, these repetitious cycles. You see the same kind of patterns emerge over and over again. And here's, here's one way to put the big picture pattern. The, the, the first element is that first God elects to partner with humanity to rule his world in love and wisdom. He says, I in freely choose out of my own goodness and love and generosity to not only create you, but to invite you into actually ruling this world that I've made for you to be my partner. Step two is that God's people rebel. They reject him, they reject his rule, they sin, and they squander their partnership. And this introduces all kinds of chaos into the world, brokenness, sin, death, destruction, pain, evil. And so, because God's good, he judges. He brings a form of judgment into the, into the picture in order to, to dispel the progress that the evil and the sin and the destruction is making and also to draw people back to him in humility. So that's three. Four is God's people then usually repent and they return to God. Say, so you're right, God. What have we done? We do want to be close to you. We do want to partner with you. And then fifth, God graciously then he offers healing and restoration and relationship and continued partnership with them. He doesn't hold it against them, but he returns to them as they return to him. You'll notice this pattern all up. For some of you, you probably were thinking I was just describing Genesis 1 through 3, and I, I was. That's very explicitly the creation story of, of, of God with Adam and Eve. But it's also there in the flood story. Then it's there in the surrounding the story of Exodus and the establishment of Israel. It's there in the period of Judges, very, very explicitly. And this is the relationship most of the kings, once the nation's established, the, kinghood is, the kingship is established, most of the kings have this very relationship to God as well in Israel. And then it culminates in the most drastic act of judgment in the Old Testament, which is the exile where the divided kingdom at this time in history, Israel's divided into two kingdoms, actually. You've got uh, Israel and you've got Judah, and they go into captivity. They're taken captive into foreign lands in Assyria and in Babylon. And uh, the Old Testament actually ends with God finally. They repent, and God restores them back into the land, the return from exile. It's, the, it's covered in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Um, and they get back in the land, they rebuild the walls, they rebuild the city, they rebuild the temple, and then the Old Testament kind of ends on this, this cliffhanger note. Um, it's there in Nehemiah, it's there in Chronicles, sort of like, what's, what's next? We've been through all this stuff, and this cycle is repeated again and again and again and again, and the question sort of remains, is this going to be an endless cycle that we're doomed to repeat ad nauseum forever? That's the question it hangs on. Uh, but what's interesting is that in all of these stories throughout the narrative, God continues to seed in these little promises of hope. He continues to give this idea that, no, there actually is going to be an end to the endless cycle. This constant rebellion, return, restoration, rebellion again thing is going to come to an end as he begins to seed this little hope throughout. And so Joel is one of those places uh, where that seed is developed and, and, and grown. And so that's where we turn now. Joel was likely, we don't know for sure, but he was likely prophesying right at the tail end of the exile, maybe just after the period of Ezra and Nehemiah. And like all the prophets, he spoke God's word to God's people, and he was calling them uh, to repentance. He's saying, look, you're in the cycle again. You've, you've sinned, you've blown it, you've aligned yourselves against God and with evil and injustice. And it's time for uh, you to repent, uh, or, or God's going to have to use drastic measures to return you to himself. And so in chapter one of Joel, Joel announces that there was just, they've just come out of a time of judgment, and he talks about these locusts. And it's actually unclear. Some commentators think the locusts are a prophetic metaphor for military invasion or something, uh, it's possible they're just locusts and that he's just describing an actual locust swarm and famine and, and drought and, like, just suffering in the land. That's kind of where I lean. And at the end of that, he says, look, this has just happened, so repent. Return to the Lord. He'll have favor on you. Chapter 2 looks forward to some kind of cataclysmic incoming day of judgment where there's going to be this military force that's going to pervasively, justly wipe out rebellion against God in the land as well. And he, he calls this day in Joel 2 the day of the Lord, which is an idea present throughout the entire scripture. And so after both of these descriptions, the past day, this future day, he says, so repent. He says, repent, turn back to God wholeheartedly. And then in 12, 13, 12 and 13, chapter 2, he says this, yet even now declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. That's the character of God. That's the character of God. So... The rest of chapter 2 is what we're going to focus on this morning, and that's after this point. He says, uh, here's what God will do if you do repent and return to him. And so let's, let's dial in on Joel 2, starting in verse 17. The first thing he talks about is, is a day of restoration for this generation of, of, of folks in Judah. So he, he talks about three immediate acts of grace that are going to happen. So let's first start reading here, verse 18. He says, then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said, behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil. You'll be satisfied. 
and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. So that's the overarching what he's going to do. So verse 20, he gives a specific thing. He says, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. So is he talking about the locusts? Is he talking about this future army? It's, it's all this kind of prophetic blending together. But the idea is that the, the, the force that's causing you know, the active distress in Israel is going to be removed. He's going to bring salvation, first of all, by defeating the invaders. And then he keeps going. Uh, let's go next slide. Verse 21 says, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. So he speaks to the land itself. It's a prophetic image. Land, be glad. Even the animals, verse 22, you beasts of the field. The pastures are going to be green. The trees are going to bear its fruit. The animals will be taken care for once again. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. And then he addresses the children of Israel. Be glad, children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. Let's keep going. Next slide. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. All of that sums up a second point of grace that God's going to bestow on them. And that's he's going to restore the devastated land. Defeat the invaders, restore the land. And then a third point there in verse 27, really important to pay attention to. And that's that God is going to bring his divine presence back to the land. He says, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and the people shall never again be put to shame. The temple was destroyed as part of the exile. The spirit of God departed and they come back to the land and he says, no matter what happens, I am going to return my spirit in your midst. And so I think this verses 17 through 27 is, is immediately applicable to this generation that received this prophecy first. God is going to restore them, and it's going to look at least these three ways. But then he does something really interesting. And if we just look at the first verse of the next section, he says, it shall come to pass afterward. So when you read, this is all meant to be read together, but we get this little clue here, afterward, that he's, he's kind of shifting his focus to a little bit of a wider lens. He's kind of taking a bigger picture here. So after, so there's this time now, sometime after this new thing is going to happen. And I just want to pause here to note something about the way biblical prophecy works. I remember Tim used to use this analogy all the time. I've had some professors at the seminary use this. I don't know where this originated. Somebody needs credit for it because it's really good. Uh, but basically, prophecy in the Bible is kind of like mountain peaks. And for someone like Joel writing this thing, it's as if the prophet, like all of us, are looking head on this mountain range here. And you can kind of see three peaks. But from this perspective, you're not always sure, like, is this one peak with kind of cutouts? Is this three mountains? Are they close together? Are they separated? You, you just kind of see a theme develop, and you can't really make out the detail. Does that make sense? But oftentimes when we get to the New Testament, we see some, a lot of these things have begun to be fulfilled really, really practically. And so with a little more context, we can actually get the side view and we can see, oh, though Joel could only see it head on, we can actually begin to see that there's different levels of fulfillment. 
So Joel had, had a near fulfillment in mind, and then he, he potentially wasn't, maybe he knew about it, maybe he didn't, but there was a later fulfillment, and then probably he did have a sense of a final full fulfillment, where this thing is finally, this story that he's weaving gets fully wrapped up. And this is actually a really interesting passage to talk about, because this is one of the few passages where I think we can actually see clearly now all three peaks in a way that probably even Joel couldn't at the time. So, Let's keep reading, verses 28 and 29. So again, it shall come to pass afterwards. So, so sometime after, sometime later, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So for the original readers of Joel, they're probably reading this like, okay, interesting, uh, I'm not sure what this has to do with the, like, our devastated land, but okay. Uh, how does this relate? And what's, what, God, what Joel's doing is he's using this idea of the return of God's presence to the land of Judah to tap into a larger theme that extends out historically that God will eventually bring his presence to make a home in every person who trusts him. So my question to you is this. Have you heard this before? Is this ringing any bells for anybody? Like New Testament stuff. Anybody? Acts, yes. Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. So the backstory to the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 is that Jesus, as he was finishing up his earthly ministry, he started talking about his death at some point with his disciples. And of course, they were like confused, like, no, you're not going to die. Why would you die? Don't talk about that. Don't talk like that. And there's this great passage in John 14 through 16 where he keeps talking about this thing he's going to do in the future with his disciples where he's going to send his spirit to them in a new way. In 14 he says, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Later he says, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. In John 15, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's better that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so what happens is uh, the disciples receive this teaching, and then at the, end of, at the end of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has a, he's gone to the cross, he's died, he's raised from the dead, and he's been hanging out with the disciples for 40 days. And one of the last things he tells them, he says, look, I'm about to go. I'm going to the right hand of the Father, but you have to sit and you need to wait until the divine power comes on you, and then you'll know what to do. So Jesus ascends, and then the book of Acts kind of re- rephrases, re- revisits that conversation. And Jesus, it shows Jesus ascend again. And uh, they're told to wait. And so they do. So the disciples at the beginning of Acts, they're huddled up in a house and they've got some decisions to make. They need to replace Judas. And they're kind of hanging out. And then one day, the day of Pentecost, uh, part of the, the period of time of the Jewish festival of weeks, they're waiting there. And one day, something happens. 
We're told that it's like a rushing wind blows in and it blows them out into the street and they're told that there's like tongues of fire resting on their heads and they begin to speak in various languages that they don't know and people who speak those languages can hear it and understand it and it's like the gospel is being preached like supernaturally out to all the nations that are gathered there even in Jerusalem at the time. It's this powerful magic event and people, some people are amazed and interested and drawn in and some people are like, this is weird. And I don't want any part of it. In fact, the disciples are accused of being drunk. They say, what kind of new wine are these guys on? And Peter, driven by the Holy Spirit, he stands up and he, he knows exactly what's going on because he knows Joel. He knows Joel too. And this is the exact passage that he quotes in that moment. He just reads this. He quotes it from memory, I should say. He says, this is that. The day that Joel looked forward to through a cloudy glass, we are experiencing it right now. The Spirit has come on God's people in a fresh way. And in that moment, there were really three really radical things. There's probably more we could talk about, but I want to talk about three radical things the Spirit did on that day. The first is, it's a fresh intimacy with the Spirit. You know, previously, we've even got in the last section this reference to God will be back in the land and like the way in the Old Testament the Spirit of God worked, he was an active character and presence in the story, but he would come on people for a limited time, for a limited purpose, and leave. And it was usually key leaders, prophets, kings, people like that, and he would come on them, empower them for something, and then peace out. And then uh, the God's presence was also, of course, in the temple. People could come and they could go through the ritual system to engage with the presence of God. Uh, but it was, it was there. And so the people's sense of intimacy with God was their closeness to the temple or their closeness to the anointed servants who had the spirit for a time. And this is actually saying, this is not just in the land or in the temple, and the New Testament fleshes this out more, but it's actually coming to dwell inside each and every believer in Jesus for all time, never to depart. Inside. Your relationship to the Spirit is poured out on you, not just through some prophet, not just through the temple, but in and on you. It's the intimacy of the Spirit. Secondly, there's a fullness of the Spirit, Spirit's enablement. So there's a new intensity and in activity. He talks about here visions and dreams and prophecy, and it's just these dramatic signs. So the Spirit is going to be empowering people. And Jesus already said the main function of all this is going to be to more effectively witness to who Jesus is and why it's good news for the world as they go out. So there's a fullness, a new intensity and activity of the Spirit in the people. And then third, this one's really beautiful. I couldn't think of a better word, although this is kind of an unwieldy one. But one theologian called it the democratization of the Spirit. And what I mean by that is no longer is it simply for the king or the prophet or whatever uh, to receive the Spirit, but it is for everyone. You see, first, sons and daughters, men and women, there's no gender hierarchy in who receives the Spirit, the supernatural empowerment. It's young and old. Uh, the young people aren't disqualified from receiving the Spirit because they lack the wisdom of age. And old people aren't disqualified from receiving the Spirit because they lack the abs of youth or whatever. <laughs> it's available to all. And then third, you see, male and female servants, even slaves, those who have no formal agency culturally or in their own lives, they too receive the Spirit. 
without discrimination. It's democratically available for any and every person who turns to Jesus in trust. So here's what's crazy. If we haven't connected the dots yet, we live on the other side of this day, don't we? This happened. The thing that Joel was prophesying this day when the spirits pulled out like that, poured out like this, it happened. Almost two millennia ago, it happened. And it continues to happen. The Spirit continues to baptize and indwell every single believer in Christ and equip them for ministry, gift to them spiritually. Some of you with like supernatural gifts, some of you in this room, I sincerely believe, are probably gifted with things like prophecy and tongues. Uh, but those aren't the only gifts. There's more mundane ones, things like teaching and administration and helping. Regardless, Paul develops this theology that every believer is gifted supernaturally by God to play some function in building up the body of Christ together. Isn't that beautiful? We live in that now. Do we always live with this intense awareness of it? Of course not. Some of you in this room are probably like, this doesn't really sound like my experience. Like, I've been following Jesus for a while, but I don't feel like he's gifted me in some way. The reality is he has. And I don't know how to, the best way to help, help you come to understand how he's gifted you and find the way for you to serve and contribute to the body. But he has done this for you if you are in Christ. And it's not going to look the same as it does for me, and it's not going to look the same for me as it does for you, but he has done it. He has done it. So that's what I framed it this way. This is our days of the Spirit. That's why I phrased it like this. Joel's looking forward, but we're actually looking backwards on it. This has happened, and it's amazing. It's so awesome. But Joel is going to turn one more corner now in the next three verses. It's going to kind of look at one more mountain peak in, in this prophetic stream here. So let's look there. Read 30 through 32a with me. He says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So let's highlight this next little phrase here. Uh, this is what I think he's giving us a clue that he's now looking at even another period of time. Again, maybe he wasn't fully cognizant because all these things kind of flow together. But he says, before the great and awesome day of the Lord the final day of the Lord, the decisive day of the Lord comes. So we're now in this like very end timesy period here, right? And what's going to happen? Well, weird, weird stuff is happening. Look at this. Like there's wonders and there's going to be blood, <laughs> just blood and <laughs> fire and columns of smoke. The sun will turn black. The moon will turn to blood before this day happens. This kind of language is very common in the prophets. This is what they call apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic language. This is literally end of the world kind of stuff. And it feels like it, doesn't it? You just kind of like tense up when you read it. Like, I don't, I don't want to be there for that. <laughs> it sounds horrible. This is pretty dark. Um, Joel 3 it gives us a description of what this day is going to look like. You should go read it on your own. We don't have time today, but it's, it's basically what he's pointing to is this, is this is what happens before the final day of judgment, the day of the Lord. 
And Jesus himself gave several teachings that like clarified and carried these ideas forward and showed how he is actually going to be the one who fulfills this, who does this final day. You can see that. If you're taking notes, write down Matthew 25, 31 through 46, and just draw an arrow to Joel 3, where Matthew picks up that stream, and, or Jesus does, and he says, this is actually how I'm going to do this, which is crazy. But this is Jesus' final judgment. This is the return of Jesus when he brings his kingdom to earth in fullness. When Jesus died and was resurrected, something happened. When he raised from the dead, he asserted himself as the rightful king, as God in the flesh, as the one for whom the prophets pointed toward. And he did something. He inaugurated his kingdom. He says the kingdom starts now. That's why when he was preaching through the gospels, he kept saying, kingdom is at hand, repent, the kingdom is at hand. Well, the kingdoms came when he was raised. And yet, it's not here in fullness, obviously. I mean, at Door of Hope, we believe what we're waiting for is the actual, real, bodily return of Jesus to this world to actually sit on a throne somewhere and reign in all of his perfect goodness. And we believe that that's actually the best news for the world, that that's actually going to happen. So that's what this is pointing toward. Joel didn't know it fully, but we have a better sense of it now. But why is this even necessary? Why a final day of judgment? Well, it's necessary because first, neither the restoration of, our t- of temporal blessing that we saw back in Joel's generation, like then he- healing the land and restoring them, it didn't end the cycle, did it? It didn't end the problem of human sin, human depravity, human brokenness, human mutual abuse. Nor did the Spirit of God on Pentecost coming to indwell us deal with it. it was, it's a massive and, and all-important resource for us. But you and I both know if we, if we really look around our world, though the Spirit of God is restraining sin in the world and in us, there are dark corners of this world where sin still has absolute free reign. And if we're really honest, if we're really honest, there's corners of each of our hearts Those of us, I just want to speak to those of you that are following Jesus. We all know there are dark corners of our hearts that nobody else knows about where we haven't let the Spirit really do substantial work. And so neither of those things provide the final answer to the brokenness in our world, the off-kilterness. What about our backsliding? What about our corrupted, pervasively sinful flesh? What about those who try, but, but they fail to let Jesus' love work through them holistically? What about those who want nothing to do with Jesus? What about the evil, exploitative, abusive corners of every city and every heart? There's still something to be done in the world. And so I really believe if Jesus is going to be good at all, if he's going to be good He has to be judge. If he really does love all the people he's made, if he really does have a broken heart over his loved one's pain, and by loved ones I mean every person he's created, if he really does care about the beautiful world that he's made, then there has to be a final day when King Jesus asserts his perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly gracious, perfectly loving, perfectly holy perfectly wise, perfectly true rule over every square inch of this world. That is the final day of the Lord. 
There has to be a day when he draws a line and says, no more. There will not be any more of this stuff. I'm putting an end to it. Theologians like to talk about it as the day that Jesus puts all things to rights. And I really do believe there's something in each of us. If you, if you look around with any awareness of the world at all, there's part of you that longs for that. There's part of you that longs for that. And so this final day of the Lord that he, that he promises, that Joel told us about, it's going to bring about two responses. The first is that for some people, Jesus' return as king is going to be the worst news in the world. Objectively, it's good news. It's, it's the only one with the goodness and the, the quality to reign will be reigning authoritatively and powerfully. And he's going to cut out every bit of evil from the world, and that is good news. But there are some who are going to look at it and say, I don't want that. Because for some of us, maybe this is our story currently, like there's, there, there's some of us, we, the reason we don't follow Jesus is because there's some sort of intellectual barrier. We say, well, I just don't really feel like that there's, there's good evidence to believe in something like the resurrection. Or, you know, I think there's other good reasons to explain how the Christian church grew after the death of Jesus. Or, you know, maybe even Jesus is a historical figure. I'm a little iffy on that. And so, you know, I'm kind of open to seeing where it goes. It'd be, it'd be cool if Jesus was real. Jesus seemed like a cool guy. Uh, but, you know, I, yeah, I just don't really buy it. There's some, there are some peop, plenty of people that, that are there. And that's, that's tragic in its own right. But I think it's really important to highlight also that there are people, not only in that boat, but there are people who have read Jesus, who've read the scriptures, who've looked him in the eye, looked at the way he treats the downtrodden, looked at the way his moral vision for life in the kingdom, looked, looked at his values, and they've said, I don't want it. Even worse, they've said, I think it's evil. I think it's regressive. I think it's stupid. That Jesus, I want no part of what he's up to. And so there will be people. When the clouds part, the trumpets sound, Jesus returns. It won't be a matter of do I believe in him or do I not. It will be a matter of I believe in him because I'm seeing him and I hate him. And I don't want it. That's one response. There's another response. For others, the clouds part, the trumpets sound, the clouds break, Jesus appears. It will be the greatest news that you could ever experience. It will be the greatest day of your life. For those who have aligned themselves with the king and his kingdom, who've decided to give their lives to him, to throw themselves upon him and say, I can't save myself, but I'll trust you and I'll follow you wherever you go. It's the day of vindication. It's the day when he wipes every tear from your eye and from the eyes of everyone who's there with you that you love. The deciding point is seen there in verse 32. Joel calls it. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's no moral bar to clear. The offer of good standing in Jesus' kingdom doesn't come through being smart enough or wise enough or mentally healthy enough or good enough, good-looking enough, rich enough. It's only those who throw themselves in faith at the feet of Jesus and say, save me, because I can't do it. 
I want to be with you. And I know that you're going to have to do it for me. Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, Romans 10, he picks this up. Listen to this passage. I'm sure you've heard it before. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then who's he quote? Joel. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul sees, sees the line directly. Joel didn't know who this figure was going to be. He didn't know that the Lord was going to be revealed in human flesh as Jesus. But Paul sees it's been fulfilled. It's the name of Jesus by which we are saved. And it's Jesus alone. It's, I think it's well, well to put it this way. There's an, there's an exclusivity to, the, to Christianity and, and the biblical vision of salvation. And that's that no one comes to God except through Christ alone. But there's a radical inclusivity in that that call, that invitation goes out to everyone, regardless of their past, regardless of their circumstance, regardless of their shortcomings, regardless of their inabilities. And every single person is invited to throw themselves at Jesus. Say, yes, save me. I want you. I don't know what the next step is. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what it's going to cost me. It's probably going to cost me something in this life. But I want you. That's it. That's always been what it's about. That's what it still is about until the day he returns. He's operating in a period of grace, invitational grace to come to him. It's an open invitation to any and every one. So for Christians in particular, I think Joel's prophecy does a, f a few things for us. First, it helps us avoid a couple of ditches that are really common. One is simple triumphalism in our Christian lives. You know, the idea that if you've ever been through a hard time, odds are, like, especially in church, someone's probably said something like this to you, like you're really struggling really suffering, you're really in the midst of heartache and heartbreak and things are just, you don't know how to get out of it. And someone just comes up and says, listen, man, everything's going to work out. It's all good. And then you just want to like claw their face a little bit. <laughs> everything's going to work out. It's fine. Like, I don't know, just trust, trust God more. It'll work out. I think this passage is one of many passages in the Bible that reminds us like, in this life, this side of the kingdom's fulfillment, it doesn't always work out. Like, people die every day. People suffer unthinkable tragedies. Some of you got news in the last two weeks that has, like, bowled you over, and you don't even know how to take another step forward. And, and there's no pat answer that says, hey, yeah, everything's going to be fine. Just, just hang in there. It's all good. Like, irreversible tragedies happen to us lots of times in our lives, don't they? So just like Joel's generation, I mean, if it was locusts and there was famine or whatever, like a generation of people died. That doesn't just get undone in the here and now. People lost people they loved. But it, if you hang out there too long, things get really bleak, right? We don't want to hang out in that space too long. 
The other ditch it helps us avoid is just total pessimism. The idea that, look, God has departed. Yeah, maybe he was involved at one point, but he's clearly not interested in me right now. God's departed, and really there's no hope. That's not true either. That's not true either. And it's true for at least two really good reasons. One is that Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he has come to be with us in our suffering. I love the way Josh puts it, that Jesus became both judge and judged in our place. He first received the judgment himself that you don't have to. And he suffered alongside you to relate to you, to know you, to save you. So who, whatever, however you sort all this stuff out in your head, God is not some detached, emotionless thing hanging out there in abstract, unconcerned with your suffering. No, he came right into it and suffered first. But more than that, that the idea that the Spirit now indwells every believer tells us that the Spirit of God comes along with us in every one of our struggles and challenges and difficulties as well. God isn't sitting outside of it, but he's inside with us, grieving and leading and guiding and trying to speak hope and encouragement and giving you that strength for just one more step if it's the only thing you can muster. That's what the Spirit does. So we don't fall into total pessimism. Life is hard. But the third point is this. Joel reminds us that that the God who is with us and intimately present in these dark times, and if you haven't had dark times, they will come, that this God does promise a future decisive end to all of that. It might not be in your lifetime, but if you depart the body, you will go to be with Christ and you will come back with him in his return and you have an eternity future where he gets to make all bad things untrue. He promises a future where he draws the line in the sand. He says, sin, evil, death, destruction, minor and major, it's all done. It doesn't pass any, any forward. And if that's true, we can hold out hope in the here and now. And that's not the same thing as cheap sentimentalism. That's real and lasting hope for things unseen. So fun fact. Someone told me this the other day. I was going to blow through this sermon without acknowledging it. Today is the day of Pentecost. Did you know that? We're not a very uh, church calendar-oriented church, sometimes to our detriment. But churches all over the world, the globe, right now are celebrating the day of Pentecost. Today, June 9th, 2019, Celebrating the fact that the Spirit, about two millennia ago, entered human history in a unique way to indwell the people of God, all who call on the name of the Lord. And so I can think of no better call to end this sermon with the one that Peter did at the end of that radical Pentecost experience in Acts 2, where he says this. It says, now when they heard this, what's this? The fulfillment of these prophecies. They said, to Peter and to the rest of the apostles. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far far off, 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So today, any and every one of us in this room today can call and, re- and call on the name of the Lord. If you've been walking with him for years, today could be a new day of repentance, of deeper turning into him, a day of trusting him afresh. And if you never have, today can be the day that you too come face to face with the king and decide he's good. I'm gonna follow him. And I'm gonna align myself and my heart and my will with what he's up to in the world in hope for what he's gonna do one day on that great day of the Lord. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.